I'm Alan, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Kaylee, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Danielle. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to Target Snark It, a weekly podcast from Broad Digital Consulting. It is Tuesday. I'm Danielle. These are facts. And this is yet another episode of Target Snarket. It's like we just will not shut up already, probably because we won a Gold Muse Award. And that makes us an award-winning weekly broadcast by Broad Digital Consulting. My co-hosts are with me, and they'll introduce themselves. I'm Kaylee. <laughs> literally I mean, come on oh i needed more yeah okay more. I, okay i'm sorry i am the colorful creative kernel of broad digital kaylee <laughs> and i'm alan i'm the chief annoyance officer but i'm actually the least annoying person right now Wow. Unbelievable. You know what I thought was going to happen was, Kaylee, you were going to be like, I'm Kaylee, and Alan was going to pitch a fit, and then they were going to be like, and I'm Alan, and just like (laughs) leave it. I I was certain that was what was going to happen. So uh, thank you both for coming up with such excellent introductions on the fly, truly. Uh, Not even scripted, folks. This is improvisational comedy. (laughs) All right. This week, uh, we want to talk about a feeling that is, uh, I guess at this point in late stage capitalism, pretty universal. And that, my friends, is burnout. I know that uh, we've had conversations about burnout in the past throughout a lot of different episodes. We had a friend of the pod, Michelle Wigutatum, that came on and also discussed how to not push ourselves uh, quite so far and to take care, take better care of our mental health and well-being. And we want to keep talking about it because, frankly, there's a lot to say and uh, it doesn't feel like it's stopping anytime soon. So we've all experienced at one point or another. I mean, maybe now, maybe right now in this moment, you're listening and you're like, I'm just just fucking burned out on you guys and that's that's possible too uh we are willing to entertain that we can burn people out sometimes uh but who better to talk to about it than someone who is a mental health professional who also just so happens to use their social media to provide helpful insights into the world and how we navigate through it This week, we are honored to sit down with Dr. Han Ren, who we all fangirled, fan-themed. Is that cool? Yeah. Fan-themed? Yeah. I wrote it. About... Yeah, I was trying to make it so that it was me saying it and not that you wrote it. But you're right. (laughs) Pulling back the curtain on the inner workings of Broad Digital and Target Snarket, we script it all. I just make it sound less scripted sometimes i guess you're the best at it thank you truly Uh, we are so excited to talk to you about this subject dr ren thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me such an honor to be here absolutely 
Dr. Renna is a licensed clinical and school psychologist, consultant, speaker, and educator. She is deeply rooted in liberation anti-oppressive work, practicing from a justice-oriented, interpersonal, culturally humble, and systems-informed framework. Through their widely viewed content on social media, they strive to make mental health accessible and applicable to our daily lives. Dr. Ren's pronouns are she and they, and they address pursuit of collective healing through her work centered in historically overlooked communities, especially Asian Americans and children of immigrants. She has been featured on the TEDx stage, the Headspace app, BuzzFeed, and the Huffington Post. And when Dr. Ren is not in the therapy chair, you can find her laughing with family and friends, caffeinating with black coffee, and dancing offbeat to live music. And also pelotoning, not all at the same time, I imagine. But maybe. <laughs> but maybe. Uh, who am I to say? <laughs> so, Dr. Ren, I want to jump in. I, I know that Owen had originally reached out to you after you had posted your observations as a therapist working with high-achieving folks. I, of course, naturally, we came to mind. <laughs> But how you were seeing themes across sectors about what people are feeling in their work lives. It was like, like most of your work that we're familiar with, it was all very fascinating. It was really validating to know that like, we aren't alone in this feeling really pretty bad. And one of the first points that you make is that feedback you're hearing is that organizations across the board seem bloated, uh, meaning that everyone is feeling this fun combination of both overworked and underutilized. And maybe you're snapping fingers at home if you are also feeling that. Dr. Ren, could you talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by this sort of what feels like a mutually exclusive thing, but apparently isn't? Yeah, I I think there's a lot of inefficiency where people feel like they have to play telephone and most of their days spent conveying information or documenting what they did. And they spend more time documenting what they're going to do and then what they did rather than doing the thing. Or they're communicating what they did to various different people when they could have communicated to themselves or, you know, bypassing the person, or they're combing through emails of what other people are doing. And so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of um, difficulty in just like strengthening culture and communication and like strategy, because people are still kind of figuring out their roles. And there's all these reorgs and um, a lot of inefficiency, which leads to that overwork underutilized feeling. Sure. I think it's hilarious that we're having this conversation as we just as a team this morning talked about (laughs) time tracking (laughs) and logging logging our time, Um, which really I know like from a, a leadership perspective helps me figure out where we're spending the most time to bring people in. What do you feel like is kind of that balance between like, People not doing the busy work of documenting what they're documenting and meeting about a meeting about a meeting, but also having the like kind of, I guess, cutting out the inefficiencies and still having visibility Mm -hmm. that is collaborative. Yeah, I mean, 
I think it's going to vary depending on every organization and sector. Um, But I think there's so much that is spent on trying to produce these optics or beating your own drum or managing up or making sure that the leaders feel like their personal professional goals are met rather than centering each individual's own goals or like carving out time for strategy alignment and, you know, big picture thinking. And this, you know, it takes a long time to steer or change direction for large ships, right? So it just takes a lot of energy and investment over time in order for this to happen. Um, But it seems like while we're in flux in process with this, and like, I don't even know if most companies are even in process with this because, you know, people are trying to survive and with economy and job markets, like people are not trying to be too innovative right now because they want to keep their jobs. So all of these things together leads to this like kind of, I don't know, simmering resentment, this, this Mm -hmm. discontent. And I think in the past people have said like, okay, well, I'm going to go to a different company or just, I need to switch roles within the same org. Um, and then we're finding that there's a lot of parallels and this experience is maybe more universal, even across vastly different sectors. It's just kind of what I'm noticing around big organizations in general these days. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting, too, because, I mean, nobody the, – the concept of, of – I'm going to back up even further – the idea that like there is so much work to be done, especially with the economic climate that we've seen just over the course of the last year, where like more people are being laid off and that work doesn't go away. It just mm-hmm. gets put on somebody else's plate. Right. Mm-hmm. So now we're now we're dividing one person's job and giving everybody like one and one eighths job or one and a quarter or two jobs, three jobs. Why not? Let's just hoard jobs. <laughs> right. And and you've got all this work, but then the actual the tedium of the document documentation. Like I know that for me, when I've had to, and I'm, I'm the stickler about the time tracking, but for me, even doing my own time tracking, I am occasionally like, why do I have to do this? This is so dumb. It's so tedious. And it just, it feels like such a heavy weight. Like you said, when, when there's other work that can be done. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of like working about work. Mm-hmm. Well, like sometimes I think there are like secondary or tertiary like emotions or feelings that can come into that, that make it worse. Mm-hmm. So like if there's time tracking and you understand it's for resource allocation and that feels really pretty clear, that's feels less burdensome. But if you get in this element of like, Am I not being trusted? Am I being Mm, surveilled? Um, You know, do people think I'm incompetent? It's like, you know, if you're getting some sort of gut or intuition around those things, that's that's extra piling on to a task that's already like tedious and taking you away from like if you're a creative, you're not getting to to do the creative part of your job. Like I think about that with regards to, you know, graphic designers we work with and artists. And I'm like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You're emailing me right now. Instead of making this pretty thing you (laughs) want to be making, you know? Sure. Well, I even think about just like, not necessarily here at broad, but with past jobs when everything is based (laughs) off 
a specific it's okay if it is like... no, it's, no it's we don't really work in a sense where like if we have a client that has social media content we have to dedicate we have an hour for that sure and right. if it goes right. beyond that either I'm getting in trouble because it's going beyond that or I have to just stop and not meet the tasks and so like I for I mean D, you know this I have had a very hard time being like do I accomplish the thing you need me to accomplish or do I do it in the time frame you need me to do it? Like sure. not those, because I can hit a deadline, but it might not be within the hour that you have allocated for me. Right. 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 I think, um, you know, Dr. Ren, I'd be interested in kind of getting your perspective on when I think of like past roles that I've had and, you know, we talk about bureaucracy and red tape, and it's one of the reasons that I left the enterprise world to go back to running my own business was because I just got tired of <laughs> never accomplishing anything, right? Mm-hmm. You're always running into bottlenecks. There are always, uh, you know, different departments that need to, like, they've hired somebody. When you talk about, like, organizations being bloated, mm-hmm. I just immediately thought of a former organization where it was like, you know, you had a, a full W-2 job just to push one button mm-hmm. and you might only push one button four times a week, but you like, you couldn't outsource that job to anybody else. So then it ends up being like, well, God, for the person that's only pushing the button four times a week, like I'm fucking bored, yeah. mm-hmm. right? I'm bored. My job is to push this button. And every time that I try to bring new ideas for how I might be able to contribute, it's like, no, 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 no. Somebody else has Mm -hmm. that job. Mm -hmm. But then that person is going, why do we have a whole job just for this bitch to push a button four times a week? Why can't I just fucking push that? And like, (laughs) yeah, Mm -hmm. right, right. And you do start to feel like, am I even contributing? Like, what is this? Do you feel like it's like it's misguided process? Like it's over processing? Because I feel like there's like an under processed mm-hmm. area of business too, yeah. where where there are no processes. Exactly. Chaos reigns. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of things. You know, the auditing process takes a lot of energy, time, oversight, like in order to really excavate where the inefficiencies are, you have to take this whole big picture look at it. And that's going to take up a lot of resources and that's going to keep, you know, business as usual from operating. However, you're going to be able to make things overall much more efficient and aligned and, you know, mission oriented as a result. But then you're also rubbing up against egos, right? People who have worked hard or been lucky or whatever have found themselves in these positions of power and they want to maintain those positions. They want to, um, you know, protect their power and not redistribute or reallocate it. And sometimes they have power that they haven't earned that doesn't necessarily belong to them. And they're still going to be hoarding it. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, a capitalistic uh, side effect of what we're seeing. So the combination of how much energy it's going to take and how it's going to really go against the personal goals of some people in positions of power make it really hard for large organizations anyway to take that hard honest look at themselves 
that concept of power that you talk about too, I know that we see it. It's so, it's so real, not just, uh, you know, within an organization, but even for our company that typically is coming in, we're called and as consultants, you know, I mean, we're not inexpensive, right? Like we are called to come in and tell companies where the inefficiencies are and what to do differently and how to cut out steps in the process, not just internally to get more done, but also mm-hmm. with their marketing, how to make their, how to, how to cut out steps for the user to get to where they need to go. And it, I know the team can, can back me up on this. So many times we run into, oh, well, that won't work because this team owns this thing and they are bonused based on this structure and their compensation depends on this and they own this, or there's a leader in charge who looks at this and goes, hold on, if this goes out of my court, then how does that affect my job, my compensation? And when we see the, the compensation tied to these things, it's like, there are inefficiencies that are literally the roadblock to you collecting more leads and achieving your forecasted goals. But what you're telling me is that you want to blame everything else Mm -hmm. except for the process, because that's the, that's the immovable structure for you at this moment. So you're like trying to like untangle this little section of yarn right that's all you know raveled Mm -hmm. up in itself and then you're like oh look it actually ties to all these other things and they're like you can't touch that you're all right untangling this piece and so it's like yeah you can get a a looser right but like you can't really untangle it unless you touch the other pieces and i think that's an issue that a lot of companies are running into even the ones who are doing massive reorgs unless you really reorg something from a top down way, you know, you can only get certain chunks. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to someone over the weekend. I saw this like really brilliant ad campaign. I think it was by Folgers of all places. And I was like, I looked to my friends and I had had two martinis and I was like, you know, I am so jealous of that marketing team because there was no dude, sorry, but there was no dude at the end of the road that said, no, I don't like this. And so something really beautiful and progressive and creative um, and touching made it through. But so often, like, things are created. They're wonderful. Actually, things go well. And then there's just, like, one thing usually someone in power that is like, this isn't to my taste or what about this amount of dollars or what happens to this subsect of customers when you say this one thing, you know? It's, it's so interesting that you bring that up too, Alan, because I think about the fact that like there was, um, there was a show on Amazon prime. God, it was like pre pandemic. And it was a show about like women entering the field of journalism. And it was just like, you know, like a fun little like drama, like it wasn't a sitcom, but it was like a a scripted drama and it was a really cute show and it was doing really well. In like the sixties. Yeah. What was that? Is it girls at work maybe? Uh, 
I know exactly I what know. you're talking about. I'll do the We're research. so bad. We're so bad at, at only knowing half the thing when we start discussing it on this podcast and then having to go like fact check somewhere. Um, but like, <laughs> like it was anyway, it was the scripted drama. It was performing very well. Like the ratings were excellent. The audience was there. And it was speaking specifically at this time during the Trump administration mm-hmm. where you had a lot of disaffected femmes who were like, no, this is this is the kind of like show that we need that shows like what, what women can do when they band together and they take on systems and things like that. And there was one dude mm-hmm. at Amazon Prime who was in power who was like, I just don't get it. Yeah. And despite the excellent ratings, despite favorable reviews and viewership numbers, they just canceled the show. Because that guy didn't get it. So it's like it doesn't even just affect the people on the inside. This is affecting your actual audiences, your viewers, your customers, too. Yeah, who's Mm -hmm. keeping the gates? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's called Good Girls Revolt. And I also have heard the same thing happened for A League of Their Own. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Iconic show. I met my wife watching that show. I mean, we went on a date at her house and we watched that show. It has (laughs) sentimental value. That's really, that's super sweet. It was a great show too. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think that they, they used the strike as just like a reason to kill off what was already kind of planned. But like, To kind of bring this conversation back to a burnout perspective, I think about the the last, last job that I had before I went, nope, I'm going back, back to my business. And we had moved out to New York for this job. And the CEO had built this company, had originally built it from a small organization like ours, and then it had blown up. And it was doing very well, but he never really got out of the mindset of like needing to be involved in every decision. And as a result, there were times, I mean, this happened so often, um, and I was in like a leadership role and still could not, could not get out from under this, where we would spend weeks building a proposal that would respond to an RFP and there would be multiple teams involved. There's like eight or nine people involved building out these beautiful decks with this narrative to respond to an RFP. And then we would have a meeting, a final meeting, like two days before it's due. And the CEO would not be involved in the process at all. And then he would show up to the final meeting, but he would show up 30 minutes late for a 45 minute meeting Mm. And with 15 minutes left, he would demand that despite the fact that we've all been on the call now for 30 minutes, he would make us go back and repeat everything that we just talked about and take him through everything we just went through. So our time isn't valuable, right? Like we've, we're, we're having this conversation and it wasn't important enough for him to show up on time. And now our time isn't valuable and we have to go back and repeat this and it fucks our entire schedule for the rest of the day because now we have to stay on this meeting for as long as he wants us there. And he hates everything. Mm -hmm. And he makes us tear it all down and completely start over 
and it's two days before the deadline. And this took two weeks to build. The amount of times that this happened was one of the reasons that I, like, I, I quit and they were like, is it because of the CEO? And I said, well, yeah, of course. Like, I can't, I can't fucking stand working in this environment where, where our work isn't valued. And they told me, no, we will pay you more money to stay and you never have to talk to him. And I'm like, but what? Like, I'm never going to advance that. Like, I can't do anything. He kind of owns the company, you know, so there wasn't really anything to do. But it it makes me think of like, you wouldn't think that foiled ideas would contribute to that burnout so much because like you didn't necessarily get it done. You didn't get it across the finish line, but it's like, you think of all that work you just put in. It's demoralizing. And hella. Yeah. You just, you're like, I'm just spending my time pandering to egos and trying to appease gatekeepers. Like, why am I doing this? What is my own personal mission alignment? I thought I was aligned to the mission of this company, what they purport to emphasize. And here I am caught up in this web of inefficiencies and it all feels meaningless. And that is absolutely demoralizing on just a human existential level because we spend so much time at work. Mm -hmm. We spend so much of our lives at work. Like it's wild. And like, it's, it's interesting because if you break it down, like you show up and you get your money anyway, Mm -hmm. but like humans were complex and we do, we search for meaning and we want to do meaningful work. And, you know, we're not, you know, we're on our computers so, so much. And it's like, we need more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's easy potentially for people to, forget leadership to forget it's like well i'm paying you anyway if i redo the deck Mm -hmm. redo the deck i'm paying you but it's like that's not that's not the point point. that's not not how hearts work (laughs) not the little literal organ but like (laughs) i don't know how that thing also not how right like (laughs) a different expert um on that one but yeah yeah, I'm just over here suffering like post-traumatic stress from when we were delivering an audit and the person we were delivering it to was very obviously not paying attention, stretching, yawning, and then at the end <laughs> told us what we needed to do before we delivered the thing that I had to be like, I don't think you understand. I delivered it. This is me doing (laughs) like, this This is is me giving it to you. There is no more. Like we worked on And this was something we worked on for months, months at this point. (laughs) Yeah. I think that, you know, especially when you talk about busy work, like nobody wants to do busy work, you know? I mean, I think that there is this this feeling, generally speaking, that nobody dreams of labor, right? Like, uh, we see that in our, our very online-ness. But also, like, even if nobody dreams of labor, nobody wants the labor they do to be for no reason, exactly. right? And you think about this, you know, also from a kind of a generational perspective, um, I think the older mm. generations are like, well, you got paid, you're getting a really fat paycheck. So like, shut up and be grateful. And mm-hmm. I had to do physical labor, manual labor, and you just sit there and you just don't even do much work and you get paid. But I think for millennials, Gen Z, like the younger generations, we're beyond that. We don't 
we you know we're beyond survival we want some actualization we want some satisfaction some fulfillment and a lot of times people have had you know different data points within their work timelines to say like, well, this was a time where I felt fulfilled and engaged and not productive. And yes, I was getting paid, mm-hmm. but I was also really satisfied with how much totally. my output was aligned to my skill set and you know the mission of wherever I was working. And because we have higher expectations, you know, the paycheck is not everything the way that maybe it was for no. older generations. No. That's, uh, you know, I think of, uh, again, my enterprise days and, and, you know, many years ago, I was the the person whose job it was to push the button four times a week. And I was still running a business on the side. Kaylee, you and I were working together then because I could, because there was just like so little for me to do. And I was collecting this six figures every year and I had great benefits and like, it may have been stupid to leave a six figure job with excellent benefits because I didn't have enough work to do. But honestly, when you don't, when you don't have anything to do, it almost amplifies the bottlenecks Mm -hmm. even more because you're going, what's that? See it. Like that's what you're observing with your extra time. What is inefficient? And I ruminate. Oh, I love ruminating. Mm, delicious. Like, I'm so good mm. at it. Mm, <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I love ruminating. And so, like, I've got all this extra time to ruminate. And, you know, people tend to think that, like, oh, Danielle's just a person that has to constantly be moving. And it's not necessarily that. But if I'm here and I'm doing a thing, like, why aren't you utilizing my skills? Why am I here and I'm doing this thing? And I guess, like, it reminds me of, I don't know if any of you ever watched Silicon Valley, but, like, when they let go of the employees, but they send them to the roof. They do that in real life. That's a real thing. They just will keep them on so they can't go to competitor. competitor? Yeah, and so they'll keep collecting on their their stocks. They still get their regular pay and everything that's just, like, a normal thing type companies will do. Wow. Oh, yes. yeah. I wish I could. Could you send me to the roof? Like, talk about bloated, <laughs> right? Like, you think that's what you want, but then are you stuck? Are you able to fill that time with another job and another sure. means sense of meaning making? Like, if not, then that is a miserable existence. And a totally. lot of times you can't work on personal projects, which would be in the tech industry, especially what you're ideally doing. Yeah. Yeah, because then you're just, you're just sitting on the roof. Yeah. I mean, I guess... Yeah, no, you're just just on the roof. Is this? I'm sorry, because remember, I thought that there were literal combs in the desert. Like, do they really put you on a roof? Like, no. In in the show, in the show, there is an actual roof. Like, you go to the roof. You have to go to the office, though. But you just don't have a project you're signed on to. Okay, for context, that you're like fool me once. (laughs) We're not doing this again. For context, Dr. Dr. Ren, my wife told me that there were that people comb the desert after Burning Man for trash, <laughs> but I heard that there were combs and I thought there were literal combs. And so now I am like, is there is there not a roof? Alan's a writer. <laughs> I literally think in metaphor, so <laughs> you need to speak to me differently. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, no, I mean, like, 
I feel like so often because we think like, man, I don't want to do a job. I just want to do nothing. But also we wouldn't fill our time with nothing. Mm -hmm. And we know that like there are a lot of times that people retire and die shortly there. They don't know how to rest. (laughs) They don't know how to own their own time. And so, I mean, I think the people who are most successful, you know, quotation marks right what does that even mean um in in this space are the ones who have a lot of fulfillment outside of work they they have different roles identities hobbies projects that bring them a lot of joy a lot of you know meaning making and that is a way to sort of buffer yourself from your sense of self and work and people who are Mm -hmm. able to do that tend to have you know more compartmentalized lives. Um, but also for a lot of people, we're not trained to do that. We, we aren't templated or modeled to do that. You know, you go to school and you're like, your progress in school is attached to a grade. Like so much of like how we are taught to exist in this world is very capitalistic and we internalize that. So for, I would say like most people, it's super hard to completely separate their sense of self from what they're doing eight to 10 hours a day. So you're saying we shouldn't derive our worth from our jobs? Then, Not at all. Danielle's like, I, I want Haley and Allen too. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just need to not per- personally. I, I've well, never been good at that. So, Doctor uh, Han, yeah. do you think that there is with this just because? I'm kind of taking in everything you're saying. Do you feel like there's a generational difference with millennials and Gen Z versus, I mean, maybe Gen X can even be included in that Mm -hmm. if just like almost constant burnout because we know retirement's not there anymore. So there's not like an end. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I didn't think of that. Perhaps, you know, that that's, that's, sure a big part of it for a lot of people but it's like even even if retirement is there like Mm -hmm. that's not really what's motivating or attractive to a lot of people in the younger generation like sit it on your ass and like you know i don't know being in florida (laughs) like it's these things that are like you know we have derive different sense of value from the things in life that give us meaning than like Mm -hmm. you know just work for however long and then you like get your pension and then you like you know read a book like that's not and yeah and die and die (laughs) and if you think about like even even the older generations like are they truly happy are they really like living their golden sure. years in the ways that they thought they would? Or are they just like suppressing everything? Cause they're like, I made it. This is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Now let's be happy. Mm. Sure. Sure. And I like even wonder about technology. I mean, we are, especially millennials, older millennials, and then younger, like the introduction of technology. And I know that, it, it's literally just completely changed what work is um, and how it shows up. And then also, like, I do wonder about the impact mentally and emotionally um, uh, in terms of, like, exhaustion, um, because we do. We talk more often, more frequently now about being exhausted from being on social media, being ex- Zoom fatigue, like, all of these terms. And, like, I... I do wonder how much an older generation would truly understand how that plays into like 
our exhaustion. You know, we're not going, sure. we're not walking 15 miles to the, you know, school every day or whatever the fuck it yeah, was. Yeah, but like, I talked to a computer for eight hours straight. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And what is that? I, I don't know. Like, what is that? But it does something and it doesn't feel great, you know? And, and Kaylee, to your point too, I mean, you know, whether or not there's retirement, there is also, I, I keep hearing this, um, that this sort of like climate concern oh, is showing up sure. in therapy sessions more right. and more and more, just feeling like there is like, there's nothing. I mean, like, I know that I frequently go like, is this all there is, you yeah. know? And I know like, whereas like my father-in-law is one of those guys that like worked his ass off. And then you save happiness for retirement to your point earlier, hon, when you talked about like, now we're just happy. Like you, you worked for a goal and that was this phase of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas I'm like, shit, I don't know if I, that'll ever happen. Like the, the yeah. planet may blow up before then. Like, should I, should I really bank on really? a section of my life eventually being yeah. fulfilling? <laughs> well, and then like, alternatively, my parents are in that retirement age now and both of them are like travel while you have knees. Like, don't wait to travel the world when yeah. your body is dying. Yeah. It's not going to be fun for anyone. Yeah. yeah. And also, like, if you don't know how to relax or enjoy or have fun while you're in the hustle, you're not going to mm -hmm. suddenly learn at 70. Like, oh, this is how you play. <laughs> sure. You know, you have oh, to yeah. be able to practice that. That's a lifelong practice. Sure. That's interesting. You know, and I think this this conversation about uh, wow, this conversation about the the generational differences. A friend of mine sent me god maybe a couple of years ago uh, a book they were reading. It was just an excerpt that talked about how prior to Gen X, work was just an exchange. It was an exchange of time for currency. My family time is separate. I work to put food on the table. I work because I need to pay my bills. Like that's, that's where we were. And then Gen X actually introduced this concept of do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And uh. so millennials then <laughs> internalized that to be, we have to do what we love to do. And I know for me, the message became monetize everything you oh love my God. <laughs> and like my husband gives me shit all the time because he's like you don't have to make money on this thing just because you like doing it i'm like right but i can <laughs> and like, <laughs> that's the that's his problem and now i i wonder what we're seeing with Gen Z in terms of like, especially when you talk about like divesting mm -hmm. your worth from your work, the pendulum, I, right? I almost wonder the if pendulum it was is swinging back. Right. Yeah. I, I wonder if there no. is this element of there's a reason that my worth is attached to my work. And it's because I was told to do something that to make sure that my career was something meaningful mm -hmm. that that I could attach my worth and my whole passion itself to. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. I think there's going to be an overcorrection just with all of these mm -hmm. pendulum swings anytime there's something to correct for. And yeah, we definitely are seeing more of that, you know, divesting um, from the younger generations, but also maybe not... Um, 
not as fully as like you know if you think about like how labor has changed too like older generations they're, they're, they're like literally pushing a button or like turning a knob and then they like turned sure. 17 knobs today and that is how they quantify their work whereas like the younger generation like they don't know as many factoids and like are you know the outputs are less concrete, but they know way more processes and algorithms and how to do things. So you, you don't have that like clean split as much. Um, sure. So it's like a different type of finagling to figure out what that divestment looks like and like how can I still get like enjoyment or challenge um, interest from my work without it being my entire identity and sense of sure. meaning making. What, I mean, kind of taking this to a conversation about how to show up in our work then, because I mean, I know everybody, you're supposed to now have a job, but also the side hustle. And like, we talked a lot about hustle culture when we talked with Michelle and like how to try and like avoid that, that sort of hustle culture mentality. But like, when you're talking about your actual work how do you recommend that people, you know, either approach their leadership about trying to devote time to things that could be really important or bringing up new creative ideas without getting like too attached to it so that if they end up hitting a roadblock mm-hmm. or getting told no, it isn't even more defeating? Yeah. Does that make yes, sense yes. as a question? Um I think so much of this is reading your environment. You have to know what type of organization you're in, how big is it, how bloated is it, how invested in power are your leadership. You have to know what you're working with because in some organizations, like this type of feedback and alignment is going to be very valuable and you're able to carve out your own lane that feels really good to you. In other environments, it's like you're speaking a foreign language. You just don't get it. And in those places, like, you know, that saying a toxic work environment is going to change you before you can change it. So reading, reading your context. That uh, the concept of the, the toxic work environment changing you before you change it is like, I have had it likened work likened to abusive relationships often just in the way of like staying because you really think that you can change the system. Like, you know, I promise things are getting better or there's like, you know, you'll get a crumb of something or you'll finish a project and think like, okay, here's the end. And it feels like, no, there's just a new shitty cycle that begins inside of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. You said that Danielle, because as soon as, as soon as they finished, I was like, I was like, Hmm, sounds like relationships I've been in. (laughs) Sounds like my type. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Do you have their number? (laughs) Yeah. I still have some X numbers. I don't know. Oh my God. Well, I mean, I I think you, you, you think about like power and coercive control and I, I mean, hate to get like this, but I'm gonna, it's like, we kind of live in a country where that is the norm. It is celebrated like in, in a lot of ways by, by the people in power, you know, it's, it's a little bit like that. So it makes sense that that tr- 
filters down through the entire fucking thing, you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think, um, you know, thinking about, and I, I don't remember if we've had this conversation or not on the podcast before, but I had an experience a few years back where, you know, we had a client that was just, um, we were working with them in like a staff augmentation capacity and they were just overloading. And when I brought that to them and said, you know, we need to take some of this off our plate, like you need to redistribute the work. This is like too much because I mean, frankly, everything is urgent. Everything is on fire and we're working, you know, way more than then our contract is really good for, right? Um, and the response that I got was, well, if you don't do it, then so-and-so will need to take on the work and she's overloaded too. And it's like, well, so-and-so is also free to have this conversation mm-hmm. that I'm having with you right they now. Can where she's, right, she says, no, I'm sorry, this is not feasible. But I know, you know, we talk about the toxic work environments and about like how, you know, it trickles down and it changes us and and reading the environment. I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people don't have conversations where they set boundaries because they are afraid of the economic conditions and climate right now. Um, And they are afraid that they would be next on the chopping block. But I also know from personal experience and even just like, like our team, we can sometimes perceive or, or feel as though we are scared to have a conversation because of what has happened in the past, but it won't necessarily happen right now in this present circumstance. So like, I mean, I guess the the question is more around like, how would you guide people to have these conversations about boundaries and sort of like wade into that in a way that is delicate enough that it won't necessarily raise any big red flags, but also that they need to have so that they can start to set up some kind of limit for themselves. Um, because burned out employees, I mean, frankly, don't perform yeah, well. And even though that's the the shittiest excuse for it, but like, it's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I want for people to be able to have these conversations around boundaries without fear. And I know that some people, the fear is, is not just real. It is, it is very much a threat. Yeah. But for some people, the fear is based on past experiences and they do need to start putting themselves out there with those boundaries now. Yeah. I think slowing down is an integral part of the process, no matter what you're doing, because so much of this is reactionary and we, you know, jump how high? Okay. You know, and then like, Companies, like from a top-down perspective, manufacture urgency, manufacture scarcity, and that like lights a fire under workers' ass. And then like they trauma bond. And so they feel like, ooh, I'm so emotionally invested in this. But like, are you actually or are you just like made to feel this way because of the manufactured nature of your 
goals and outcomes. And so I think being able to slow down with yourself and giving yourself that permission will allow you to read your body. And then you have to like learn how to read your body of like, what am I actually feeling in this moment? How do I want to proceed? Do I want to do this? Do I have to do this? Because sometimes like, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. So I'm going to do it. But at least, you know, at least you're not just doing it blindly. And like, just that half beat gives you a chance to assess like, how do I actually want to move forward in a way that's aligned with my values, aligned with what I'm hired to do, and aligned with what my other, um, you know, stakeholders and outcomes are in other domains of my life. And just having the conversation with people is a great starting point of like, hey, you know, I thought about this. And um, I'm wondering if there's some wiggle room to talk about deadlines, or um, if we can... Sure reallocate some of this other stuff on my plate. If you want me to prioritize this, what do you want me to deprioritize? You know, just having conversations with your leadership around just different ways to work and different types of support that you need. And sometimes leadership are going to be able to give you that. And sometimes they won't. And either way, you're going to get more information about your capacity and the ongoing rightness of fit for this place. Right. I like that, especially because, I mean, I know that I, like, I vacillate between, like, being very blunt about boundaries in some cases, and then also being terrified to ask for them. But also, if we don't begin to set them, we can't, we can't expect that people will respect them if we don't put them there, you know? Um, If people don't even realize that there's a boundary, then they're going to trample all over it anyway. And so finding a a good way to be able to delicately, you know, as you you presented, bring that up so that you do start to assert some agency, some autonomy, um, and, and put something up that gives people a chance to respect it or not. Yeah, and you have to know what that is for yourself first. And that is a line that I think a lot of people don't recognize. They don't know a boundary has been violated until they get that like resentful ache feeling. And if you don't learn Mm -hmm. to like reel it back so you can step in before you get to that place, it like calcifies and then you're just like bitter all the time. And yeah, yeah. You know, I had never connected the dots on because as advertisers, like when we were were creating urgency, it is. And I had never connected the dots until you said that, that like urgency can be and is manufactured. Um, And that is interesting relating it to toxic workspaces because I think you had said, and we may have already touched on this, so it, it's just hearkening back to like nothing is urgent if, if, if everything is, but like I had never really thought about that being created as like kind of a shady way to motivate or to maintain um, someone within an organization, you know? Yeah. Cause it's, it's, formula for trauma bonding, right? Like, oh my gosh, you're in in this intense deadline too, and you're feeling freaked out. So am I. Let's connect on how freaked out we both feel. Now we have a closer relationship. Sure. I think Danielle met. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I like, and the, the tough, the tough part is too, like my ADHD brain needs urgency. I require Mm. it in order to get things done. Because otherwise, if I ain't got a deadline, shit, like, 
like nothing is happening. Or if I know the deadline isn't for like a month, it's it's one of the reasons that we have to project plan everything and give ourselves little tiny deadlines, mm-hmm. as little treats. Because <laughs> like otherwise, I mean, I know I will just wait. I will just wait. And then last minute, ADHD brain kicks in and I go, shit, I got a deadline now. Like <laughs> everything is urgent. But also, I mean, you know, to speak on, Alan, what you said, like, if everything is urgent, nothing is, this is also one of the reasons that we calendar daddy, right? Yeah. And Dr. Ren to explain. Um, <laughs> like, calendar daddying is a concept that we have here at Broad Digital, where occasionally it is just like, hey, you've got a lot of priorities on my plate. I need you to daddy my calendar mm. and tell me what comes first. Yeah, and it like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As the project so, manager, I am the calendar dom, but we can all calendar daddy. I just really right. wanted we to make daddy that clear. Other, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, this is where calendar daddying comes in, right? Because like, you know, not to say that that corporations don't often use urgency as a manipulative tactic, but I also know that as a leader, I use it as a, well, I don't know, everything feels on fire. So yeah. like everything needs to get done, right? It's it's less uh it's less manipulative and more just really bad time management on on my on my end. And so, you know, the team will frequently have to go to, and I have to come to you guys and say like, Hey, you have a lot of things on my plate. Tell me what comes first. Mm -hmm. Tell me like, what is the most urgent thing on here? Then let's do it in order. But also we know, and we've had this conversation multiple times on the podcast before that we, if you're juggling a lot of different balls, like some of them are going to drop. Mm -hmm. And if everything is urgent, You'll find out real quick which one was really urgent. Well, which one was important? <laughs> as soon as something does, right? Like, what is right. the difference yeah. between urgency yeah. and importance? Because if you're only prioritizing things that are urgent, you never get to the things that are important. Important, mm. right? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, especially if everything everything is due on this mm-hmm. day. And you know, we had this conversation earlier today talking about like processes and reviews and things like that, and. We have a tendency, I I have a tendency at least to think like, I need to be, I need to review everything. I need to be involved in every part of the process. But then when things happen without me, I go, oh, well, I guess it got done. And like, (laughs) we just move on. Or like, Alan will say, I'll be like panicked because I'm like, I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. And we have this meeting and they're like, how about we just reschedule the meeting? And I'm like, oh shit, that's right. (laughs) We can do that. That's a, that's an option. Um, <laughs> urgency is is kind of also just built into our mm-hmm. culture. Totally, yeah. That is, uh, and as a function of capitalism, and then you know, of course, of patriarchy and white supremacy mm-hmm. as well. The trifecta. Um, yeah. What's that? The trifecta. <laughs> the trifecta. Yeah. Mm, fun. The three besties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So I I wonder too, um, I wanted to go back to something that you had said earlier because, and I actually wrote it down because I hate it so much um, (laughs) that I wanted to come back to it. Managing up as a concept, I fucking hate it. I am wondering if you would share with our readers, Mm -hmm. with our readers, 
nobody's reading this. This is the one platform we can't do. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's an auditory format. If you would share with our listeners and our viewers, um, what is managing up? Mm, Yeah. So it's, you know, managing up, managing across. It's like, not only do you need to do work, you have to make sure that the right people get visibility into your work and they're able to get it in like bite-sized digestible chunks. So they're like, wow. And so you spend just as much time after you're done with your work to like package it. So it's like nice and shiny and then positioning yourself to the right people so they can say, oh, this is very cool. this is the impact and value that you have added. Therefore, next performance cycle, you will get a raise or whatever. And so it's very strategic. It's very beat your own drum. And it very much um, is aligned with certain personality types, certain more extroverted, gregarious, westernized personality types are better at managing up. This is not something that comes naturally to people who are more introverted and people of the global majority, where we're much more of a collective team mentality. It actually feels very icky to a lot of us. So that's a concept that, you know, people have to really learn how to do in their specific organizations, or they find, you know, managers who can amplify their work or like advocate on their behalf. I've I've also had it uh, an additional one on there years ago when I was told that I wasn't managing up effectively, um, that I need to manage my manager's deadlines as it relates to my work or something like that. That that like if they weren't doing their job, I was somehow also responsible right. for their job as well as my job. Um, which, you know, when you're in a small team and you need things, you have to poke people mm-hmm. frequently and that makes sense. Um, but in a larger corporation, it it doesn't make a ton of sense to like fine advocate for your projects, but also like I'm, I'm not your manager. Yeah. I don't get paid for that. (laughs) Don't, don't tell me, like, don't tell me that I have to manage you managing me. Exactly. Because that's just an extra part of the the job. And it's, it's so interesting because a lot of this is packaged in the way of like we're building team cohesion. Like we are all responsible for each other and ourselves, you know, this idea of like connectedness, but then it, the reward system is still not rewarding any of the collaboration that goes on. It's still very much taking metrics based on individuals. And so it's, you know, it feels like you're being sold a false, you know, false, it's false advertising. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, so much of like what we do for clients too is helping marketing teams sell their efforts to and like prove everything to their leadership Mm -hmm. and tell data stories and narratives around like what what was accomplished and i i can't help but wonder that like would we need to tell these stories if the leadership involved took some extra time to acquaint themselves with the efforts and they took the initiative to do some of their own research and decide ultimately instead of their employees having to prove 
why they're good at their jobs or why they're there if they were to start from a default assumption that the employees do good work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Assuming good intent. Yeah. Yeah. The first like four years of my work life were just, can you provide a source as to why you think that? It's like, you hired me to do this thing. I need to provide a resource every single time, every single time. Sure. That's under my Yeah. Well, and, and is, you know, I think just contributes to that larger conversation about a lack of like agency. And, you know, this is something that, that I know we see all the time as consultants and it's, it's even frustrating from a vendor perspective. If you hire somebody to do the work and then you never listen to anything that they're recommending and you're telling them why they're wrong so consistently, like, why are you paying us? Mm -hmm. And I know that there are lots of people who are like, well, fuck it, just keep cash in the check and like, who cares? And we've tried that, but man, I don't think any of us do well with it, even from a vendor perspective. I think about this with clients sometimes, you know, there's some clients who come to therapy because someone in their life is like, you have to go to therapy. It's like, fine, I'm going, but they don't actually want to be there. They're not trying to Mm. examine or change, but they're like, well, I'm in therapy. And they kind of weaponize the fact that they're in therapy. And then they, you know, count it off as like their guilt tax. Like I paid someone so I don't have to feel guilty about not changing. And that is very deeply unsatisfying work for me. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're doing work that just checks a box, you know, nobody, nobody wants to to feel like that's what all of their efforts went to is just checking a box. But also, if organizations make it so that people are rewarded based on that box checking, there's not really much you can do. I know, like, Alan has written a whole lot about uh, work from home and return to office and how many organizations are making return to office something that's mandatory. And then we end up in a situation where, again, we're just checking a box. We can't figure out why the fuck we're back in the office other than it starts to feel like, to your earlier point, Alan, am I being surveilled? Is that why you need me back here? Because you need to keep an eye on me? What about where I'm most productive? Am I not allowed as a grown adult that you hired and trusted to make that decision for myself if I am most productive in the office or if I am most productive at home? And does my output not matter for something like that? Um, you know, this this idea of... Uh, People say that they're not micromanagers or there isn't micromanagement, but there are lots of different flavors of micromanagement. Mm-hmm. They Absolutely. don't trust the own, they're like, they don't trust the system that they built themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you, I wrote a little bit about this, but like this capitalism in and of itself is based on exploitation. And I always think that corporations and businesses live in fear of that same exploitation happening to them. And so it creates this environment that micromanagement and surveillance feels necessary because if you figure it out, (laughs) why wouldn't you be like, Oh, same Zeebs, same Zeebs brother, you know, (laughs) like I too am going to play this game and people make money on nobody playing 
the same game, you know, having empathy, having a good conscience, um, having a good work ethic, whatever that means. I think we talked about work ethic with Michelle too, which was super Mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, And yeah, I mean, with Return to Office, you know, I could do like eight episodes by myself talking to no one about it, but like the the demographic- That's just called monologuing. (laughs) Writing another book. Right, right. Like the demographics of who wants people to return to office is- is pretty obvious. And, and also I, even if I'm being generous, like there's certain people who get further going to office and fraternizing in their careers versus other people. You know what I mean? So that's, that's it. That's, that's my soapbox actually for the rest of the episode. For oh, the are whole you putting episode. it away? Yeah, I'm going to go. I'd like to see you. <laughs> push it. Oh, I would actually my my horse was a little shorter today sorry (laughs) I would really love you know thinking about action items um based on you know burnout everybody's feeling it um or most everybody is feeling it I suppose I know that like when we started the conversation or before we had started recording I had had said that, you know, we like to have action items for people who are are sort of like in this business world versus people who are out of this business world. Um, but I would also really love to know, like, we have had this conversation on the podcast before about small business ownership can be a pretty toxic audience as well. And it's because, I mean, most of us learned business inside of a corporation, Right. And there are lots of things that small business owners are told to do or to enact in terms of process and procedure in order to keep a handle on things. And I know that, I mean, having now gone through an accelerator program with a handful of them and examining my own, my own attitudes, my own reactions to things as well. I also know that small business owners are very afraid of that exploitation that Alan just talked about because we see it with corporations and because we have fewer resources just in general and we can't stay afloat the way that larger corporations might be able to if they're being exploited. So at the same time, though, that also leads a lot of times people who are small and medium sized business owners and leaders to be more toxic, to drive to drive processes and procedures that actually lead to more burnout than even sometimes at these corporations where you may be able to fly under the radar for a while, right? What are some ways that this particular audience, people that are like me, can sort of re-examine or restructure what it looks like to engage with employees in a way that doesn't contribute to burnout, that isn't unnecessary processes, but actually necessary processes that are helpful and productive and boundary setting, as well as goal setting for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I'm a small business owner myself. I have a group practice. So, you know, I really think about the way that I've tried to organize my mission and values and how that translates to how my you know, the operations of the practice runs. And um, you have to be very clear on your mission and vision because not 
every business is going to have the same values. And if your business is to like grow and expand and make a ton of money, then it's hard to avoid some of that extractive exploitation feeling because you're just trying to cut costs, right? But if your business's value is, you know, to build community or to provide a service or what something else, then, you know, it's easier to keep that centered and yeah, maybe you make less money, but then you feel better about yourself at the end of the day. So you have to be clear, like, why am I doing this? What am I doing? And then how, how am I doing it? I think a lot of times we have such this like scarcity mentality so that everybody's competition. And if that's the energy we approach people, employees, vendors, whoever with, that's the energy we're going to get back. So I very much try to cultivate collaboration over competition in every space that I occupy. There's enough pain to go around. There's enough wealth to go around. There's enough business, you know, whatever it is, we will be able to forge longer term alignment if we are able to collaborate, even if the collaboration isn't super deep or long. So yeah, yeah, like anytime, you know, we see those reality shows, those game shows, we're like, I'm not here to make friends. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The Bachelor. Yeah. (laughs) Bachelor, Top Chef, like all of it, right? Yeah. My husband's always like, you would be so bad at this show because you would be like, I'm just here to make friends. One time I looked up the uh, the uh, sun sign. Sorry, I'm an astrology nerd. Of like the winners of Survivor and Sagittarians do so poorly. We lose all the time (laughs) for that reason because they're always the people making friends, and it's not about that. (laughs) Do Gemini's do really well? Yeah, of course you do. But it's actually it's actually the Earth signs. The Earth signs take it home all the time. Capricorns, Virgos, Virgos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sorry. Yeah, but I think that that collaboration thing. I mean, especially I'm curious about this because I know Alan has talked about you know on the pod before, sort of just like the inherent power dynamics that exist inside of any kind of business structure. That unless you have ultimately like an employee-owned situation, that there will always be some kind of power dynamic that exists there. Mm -hmm. How do you? How do you? prioritize collaboration because I also feel like there is a tendency among small business owners to both and and I can speak for myself on this too to both also want to take the reins but also like hey everyone I'm one of the guys you know and I see that a lot with small business owners as well (laughs) we're all personal friends Mm -hmm. and there have absolutely been times where that has has felt complicated and confusing Because I I do want to collaborate, but I also do a disservice to my team when I don't recognize the power dynamics that are inherent and things like that. We just talked yesterday, uh, you know, I told Alan I was in this workshop meeting where they opened with three minutes of mindfulness. And I was like, oh, we should do this. Like, I would love that. I would love to like open these meetings with mindfulness. And they were like, yeah, I mean, like, cool. Like it might set a better tone for the meetings, but also like, are you going to police it? Like, like how, how does this work? Right? Like, are you, because if you have cameras on and people decide not to participate, they may feel like they're being watched. And then if you don't have them on, 
then do you even know they're doing it? And does that matter? And like, there's sort of that inherent power dynamic and like, you are looking at this as a suggestion that could be helpful, but will everybody feel like it's mandatory because you're the fucking boss kind of a thing? How do you how do you recommend that people sort of like prioritize that collaboration while also understanding the impact of the power dynamic? Yeah. I mean, it's a fine line to walk, right? Cause you got to be a leader, you know, you're still the leader and people are right. not going to follow a leader who is everywhere. Uh, so you have totally. to, you have to be clear on your own values and your own mission. Like, why am I doing this? Why is collaboration important to me? Not just like, oh, it's collaboration for the sake of it. And then transparency into your processes and, you know, inviting input and feedback and then sharing your own digestion of it. Like, okay, this is what you shared with me. This is how I processed and organized and made sense of it. And this is what I'm feeding back out to you as my action sure. steps or my um you know, my next priorities, given what you have shared. So then it becomes this like ongoing process of like, we're going to be iterative, we're going to be cyclical, and that's okay. But that's how we grow. And so we don't have to like get it right, like at any point, because we can always change our mind and move and and figure it out and, and, you know, pivot. And that's the but the 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 process and the mindset and the normalization of not knowing everything and like figuring it out together. I think that's an important part of the culture that has to be emphasized that you don't have to show up. We don't have to like already know the answers before we start. We're going to figure it out and you're, we're all going to be part of this process and it's going to be collaborative, but then like ultimately like someone's got to make the call, right? Like the leadership has to make the call. How would you recommend, you know, talking about burnout and especially for folks that feel like they're at like more bloated organizations or like their talents are being underutilized, they're they're doing busy work, they're doing repetitive work. How would you recommend that as an action item, they maybe attempt to make changes to their work environment, but also take care of themselves outside of the work environment as well? I think, you know, in the situations where you really don't see yourself being able to make changes. It's like truly not going to um, be heard if you continue to raise your voice. Um, You have to start planning for your next steps. Maybe it's an exit strategy. Or how do you beef up other domains of your life? Do you need to pick up a new hobby? Do you need to think of something else that you can have more kind of goal oriented, um, you know, wins in, in your life. So you can just feel that like we all get motivated by small wins and successes and seeing ourselves reach the goals that we set for ourselves. And maybe that's not going to be in your work domain and that's okay. So you have to be really honest about where you are. What is your timeline for how long you can sustain this? Why are you trying to sustain this? What does exiting or shifting, look like? And how can you integrate daily practices of joy and play and rest and all these other things that we need as humans to function well? Sure, sure. That's so huge that like, as someone who has a hard time trying to add it into my daily life of play, joy, rest, 
I always find myself needing to dedicate like a whole day to get it done. A whole day to just relax. For joy. And then like I can't actually do any of that thing because I'm Keely. like I have given myself 24 hours. Like this past weekend, I was like, I have 24 hours. I'm going to be so rested after this. And then I right. sat in my couch and I just was like, I can't sleep because I only have 22 hours to rest now. Right. I don't right. have enough time right. to do it. Like, <laughs> Haley, you did enjoy today. <laughs> what the fuck? Isn't it fun how we do that to ourselves? How we capitalize yeah. the things that mm-hmm. are inherently anti-capitalist or allegedly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my husband is always yelling at me about that where I'm like, uh... I can't believe I didn't do anything all day. And he's like, shut the fuck up. Like you absolutely, like, you do everything all of the time. It is time for you to rest. But you're right. Like the, the, the capitalism kind of seeps in. Like I wasn't productive enough on my day off. But I think also like there is, I know for me, Alan, you and I just recently talked about this. I was supposed to have a, a potato party this last weekend. <laughs> and it was a party wherever it was a potluck where everybody was going to bring a dish that had a potato in it uh, somewhere. And there were like 30 people that were coming to my house for this party. And then we had terrible rain and a flood warning and our power went out and we had to cancel. And when I tell you that I cried yeah. because I was like, but this was my one thing that I was going to do that wasn't work this week. <laughs> and then I just feel terrible because like, I only have so much time. That's not work. that I have to not work. Mm-hmm. Like I a hundred percent get that feeling. And if I don't maximize it, then I, then there's that defeat that mm-hmm. like my life really is just work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's, that's why the podcasts are so important, right? Like we can't, yeah. we don't have to optimize or maximize rest, joy, <laughs> and play. We just got to incorporate it. It's got to integrate it. Sure. Sometimes it's boring. You're like, oh, I thought I was going to do this really fun thing and like was actually just vegging and scrolling on my phone. But like, if that's what your body needed, then that's what your body needed. And that's okay. Totally. And yeah, I think like- the more we can normalize that better oh i didn't mean to cut you off yeah i was thinking it makes me think of this quote by pema children have i said this before on the podcast i don't know but like she has this she's a buddhist um and she wrote um what book i can't remember what book but anyway the the concept is not too tight not too loose right with your meditation practice but if you take that into your whole life it's like not holding on to things so rigidly but not being so loose that like sicky narnar everything's like uh you know what the, i get like this at the end of the podcast that was probably i love said. that buddhist quote <laughs> <laughs> beautiful buddhist quote by pema children way to ruin t-shirt everything. immediately no <laughs> make everything too sicky narnar guys like <laughs> but that's what <laughs> Pema Chodron, probably. Please, everyone, read her books, and it will be better than what I just did. Thank you. Excellent. Well done. Thanks for thanks for tying that all up. <laughs> um, I, Doctor Red, I don't know if you have any minutes at all to share 
your worst mistake that you ever made at work. We're trying to normalize the concept of imperfection so Mm -hmm. that people will feel a little bit more acclimated to maybe getting things wrong, knowing that it has nothing to do with them personally and is no kind of personal judgment so that they can instead focus on how to do it a little bit better the next time around. Yeah. So my, my worst professional mistake, I was 21. I straight out of college. I was 22 by that point. And I was teaching um, and I did Teach for America, which like has its own reputation. Um, back <laughs> in for the early 2000s, it, it was a very, you know, like, ah, reputation um sure and so there was a like a huge like savior complex that like i went in there with that was like very much like indoctrinated into me and i um was like i'm here to like change the system and rock the boat without even learning how the boat functions and and i was running into some um just like roadblocks of understanding why the processes were done the way they were within the school. And so I had emailed, I went above like multiple levels and emailed like a district coordinator to get some answers about that. And I was chewed out like very publicly um by my principal like you do not jump rank like this like who do you think you are like if you have a problem you come to me and you know later on i found out there was some like shady things happening that she didn't want found out which is why she didn't want me to jump rank (laughs) which is a whole other story but it really humbled me and it really made me realize like okay i cannot go anywhere and think i can be the shit like i'm not I have mm-hmm. to show up with humility, learn the system, and then work with the system if I'm going to shift anything. You can't overhaul something as an outsider. That's just not how people respond. You know, if they do respond sure. to that's because they're fearful. That's how colonization sure. works. But if yeah. you want to be collaborative, you cannot just go in and do that. Especially as a 22-year-old with like no life experience or knowledge or anything. So that was, I mean, I almost lost my job for that. You know, she was like, this is, this is going in your performance review, like everything. Uh, It was super humbling, but I learned such an important lesson from it. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And most definitely, like, (laughs) I I think, you know, we've all shared our our previous mistakes that, uh, at least in my case, definitely lost me a job. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I mean, being in those in those situations and and needing to get more curious uh, is definitely uh, I feel like a common theme that ends up happening. So thank you so much for sharing, uh, and thank you for being a part of our podcast today. I know mm-hmm. Alan's going to close us out because that's what's written in the script. Uh, <laughs> but Alan, did you also want to to thank Doctor Ren for for being here today? I didn't know if it was in the script. Wow. Well, it's not um <laughs> do you also want to be grateful <laughs> you ungrateful person <laughs> i am grateful i'm still fan theming so thank you so much for joining us it was fascinating it was awesome we have yeah. so many great um concepts and uh, yeah it just it's great of you f- to give your time to us <laughs> 
did a really good job oh, there. I'm the worst at podcasting, it. but I'm killing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's our episode for today. Thank you for listening to another episode of Target Snarket. Make sure to like today's episode and click subscribe so you can be the first to know when our new episodes are live. If you love today's episode and love Dr. Ren as much as we do, please, oh, please head on over to YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, where you can follow us for more content or add your two cents in about today's episode. And also so that you can get Dr. Wren's handles. To yeah, I was thinking that too, but I, media. I can't be. On. It wasn't scripted. It's fine. Thank Dr. Wren, what are your social media <laughs> handles? It's just Dr. Han Wren on TikTok and Instagram. Thank cool. you. Okay, bye. <laughs>